Sjesalmovana oblara, sila sporedi sablana, ke se rijede mi ono, ke se rijede mi ono. Me porto malo se, no se siente lo que no se ve. Ojos que no ven, corazón que no siente. Ojos que no ven, ojos que no ven. Thank you, thank you, the best song ever. This is still an English podcast, okay? I just sometimes share the Spanish hits that are earworms that are stuck in my head. That being said, let me segue into what this episode is supposed to be about. I'm going to be telling you about the story of real women behind Chicago. The movie musical with Richard Gere, with Randa Zellweger, with Catherine Zeta-Jones looking hot. I didn't watch it because as we have all learned the hard way during these 60 episodes, if I watch something like a movie or a musical, I then try to fit the plot line into that and I, I just didn't want to compare that. That being said, if you actually want a review of the musical and just a commentary on it, kind of like think true crime obsessed podcast, but for movie musicals, this is technically a collab, a crossover with my friends from Tell Me More, Tell Me More podcast. You will probably remember Leah from episode 7 when I told her the story about Girl in the Box and she was like, what the fuck, why am I here? Uh, I love it, but this is this is grim. This is the, the case you're telling me. Leah and her friend Odisea are South African queens and these two have the podcast Tell Me More, Tell Me More where fortnightly they watch a movie musical and they tell you all about it. They make a commentary on it, they tell you how it fits the culture. It's fun times. You should definitely check it out after this. So you listen to the true stories, then you go ahead, you watch the movie musical and then you go ahead and listen to that podcast as the commentary on it. And you have a fix. Your whole day is Chicago. That's it. What more can you wish from me? This is also an appeal for Alicia, who is the second host of Tell Me More, Tell Me More, to make a meditation app or just like read sleep stories, okay? Just listen to it, okay? They have the most calming voice. They have the most calming, soothing voice. I just need them to make a freaking meditation app in their South African accent. Okay, that's it. I'll stop fangirling. It's so beautiful. Listen to them right after this. I will never forget when Leah was on the podcast and I literally thought that she invented the intro song Tell Me More, Tell Me More. She was like, no, no, that's like from a musical. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. I genuinely thought like this was a hit. This was going to make it, you know, to the charts just as a song. I, I can be so dumb. I can truly be so dumb. So hi, hello, welcome. This is uh, by all means necessary. <laughs> to just direct you to a completely different podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Maya. I don't know how to do intros. You fought in 60 episodes. I will learn. No, you were wrong. So let's go into the expression of the day now that I already <laughs> spent like five minutes singing and directing you to another podcast. During the research of Real Women of Chicago, I came across an expression. And it contained the word Dickens. So we'll mention the expression during the story. So I had to look it up. And that particular expression was more of a version of a phrase, what the Dickens? Now, every normal person listening to this is gonna think, okay, Charles Dickens. So like, oh, what a Dickens, like, you know, referring to Charles Dickens. Every pervert, so just me, probably just me, did not think of Charles Dickens with the Dickens word. I was like, oh, that was just the, the plural of the word dick. Sometimes I just cancel myself. Listen, trust me, you cannot cancel me more times than I cancel myself and my thought process in my brain. But uh, we are both wrong. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not about Charles Dickens, because it kind of predates him. It was in use more than 200 years before he was even born. So historians suggested that Dickens is euphemism for the beast. And they suggest that because it sounds like the alternative of devilkins. It does not. I'm going to tell you historians something. Devilkins and Dickens does not. It's de and then d, but sure. So what the Dickens is still used, well, I have never heard it before this story, but it's kind of used to utter surprise, to say, what the fuck? <laughs> or, what the devil? I still prefer what the fuck, because what the devil is more broad for me. It's more like I'm considering, you know, am I going to hell after saying this? Whereas when I say what the fuck, it's just like, it's just surprising. It's not, you know, some outrageous thought. Wow. <laughs> This is how my mind works. This is what you're stuck in here with. And of course, like many things, it was coined in Shakespearean work in 1590s. Of course, my favorite. My favorite. I love Shakespeare. I respect him. And I will never read anything by him. Because I love him and respect him so much that it's just it's too precious over work. I woke up today. I chose Rage. It's gonna be a great episode. <laughs> so in The Merry Wives of Windsor, written by Shakespeare in 1590s, you can catch the mistress page exclaiming, I cannot tell what the dickens his name is. I thought these ladies were supposed to be like sophisticated and never say such words, never utter such expressions. But then the women I'm going to be speaking today about um, also were supposed to be ladies. They were supposed to be decent members of the society that definitely do not murder. But innocent or guilty, they still got themselves into a murder mystery. Let's dive into the case of the day. Let's do it. <laughs> Can you tell the happiness that, I have, that I'm done with the month of filicides? God, that was grim. Yeah, next month is not going to be much lighter. Let's <laughs> got to break it for you. That's the story of the day. The story of the day. On March 12, 1924, Belva Gardner was accused of shooting her lover, Walter Law. A separate shooting that resulted in murder on April 4, 1924, had Beulah Annan accused of murdering her lover, Harry Kalstedt. Both of them would use the fashion defense to ensure they get away with murder by all means necessary. This is the story of real Chicago women. What you probably correctly gathered from that intro is that these are two completely separate cases. So they had nothing to do with one another until they met in prison. So first we're gonna go to the discovery of Belva's case and then move on to Beulah. I know, the names. I know. <laughs> I had to look up like a YouTube video because Beulah's name is written so weirdly. I was like, they cannot both be named the same. <laughs> like, they cannot. The, the pronunciation can genuinely not be the same. And it's not. So, hey, luckily I looked that shit up. After speaking about the discovery, we are going to go to the murderer's row, to the prison, where the few of them met, to see how they played the jury, to see how they played everybody else, go to the trial, and then finally meet a journalist that is going to make their stories public, and that's going to be the name behind the musical. 
We'll go into some of her writings from the trial, followed by the aftermath, and see what Belva and Beulah got up to afterwards, and then focus on their backgrounds. So, like, how did we get here in the first place? Cool? Clear? Let's go to March 11th, 1924. This is when the police was called to the scene, and they found a man called Walter Law, who was just sprawled on the front seat of his car, and there was a bottle of gin and a gun found next to him. So the gossip traveled and people have said that they have seen actually a woman, Belva Gardner, and they kind of suspected the two of them were lovers, and they have seen her actually with him earlier that night. So they go to Belva's apartment and they found her soaked in blood. So far not great, because there's like blood clothes on her, then there's like blood clothes soaked on the floor, and you're like, you okay? There's a lot of blood. I hope you're not gonna use the I cut myself during shading defense, because this ain't it. But no, she said she couldn't remember what happened. During that night, they immediately arrest her, she admitted to knowing him, she admitted to drinking with him at different jazz houses, at different bars, but she said she carried a gun as a fear of robbers. Again, not to do the comparison, but just to mention, because I think this is a completely different plot in the movie musical. Gartner is Velma Kelly in the musical. Well, Velma was, according to this article, sent to jail for killing her sister and husband, so in the plot of the movie, this wasn't due to an affair. Beulah's discovery that happened only a few weeks after Gartner's on April the 3rd, 1924. There's a lot more, I'm gonna have to admit, on Beulah Annan's case that will be prevalent once we speak about, you know, her trial and everything. There's just a lot more. So I don't know how that is represented, again, if you're doing the comparisons, but I can definitely tell you more articles, just more information, and she was bad shit crazy like which means of course i completely respect her and love her and i just want to be her <laughs> you know it's fine i want to be her <laughs> scratch that scratch that scratch it for my record please and the police was alerted to this murder not from beulah not from the lover because the lover is the one that's dead but from her husband because Beulah did or did not kill her lover, but then she called her husband to say that she killed a man who had tried to make love to her. So I put in the script, he tried to make love to her like a lover that he is. <laughs> because again, if he tried to rape you, you would not use that terminology. Her initial story, her number one story, because you can bet there's gonna be plenty, number one story when the police found her was that they were drinking wine and then he started arguing with her. Harry was like, mm, not having it. He started arguing with her. The two of them, of course, not connected at that time. There was a gun on the bed. And then both of them went to reach it. But even though he was closer to the gun, and in her initial story, she didn't make it clear, but it sounded like he made it to the gun first. She was the first one to touch it, to take it, and then she shot him in self-defense. The kicker comes after that because she then sat playing this song Hula Loo over and over again for four hours while she sat drinking cocktails, just watching him slowly die. Uh, that's the part where I was like, yeah, interesting. How are you going to defend that in court? Because that's, uh, as I mentioned before with Henry Van Breda case, or just any case where somebody literally is living with like a dead body or just watching them die. There's the wrong screw in their head. Eerie is here and then there is 
a whole another level that these people reach just by doing that. Now brought to prison because there was only a few weeks between these two, of course, they were going to meet while they were put on the murderess's row in the Cook County Jail. I'll obviously go do the thing that I told you to do, so like watch the movie musical and then listen to tell me more, tell me more, tell this story. But this is the part that I really hope is represented well. Because the only way I can imagine it is Orange is the New Black. You know how they had that like parlor where Laverne Cox was rocking her shit and was doing like the mannequin and was doing the hair. Well, she was just doing the hair, I think. But this was that type of vibe. They were picking clothes for each other. They were doing manicures, pedicures. They were making sure their makeup is on point, that their eyebrows are all plucked. And this particular cell block was a women's section of the jail. So they could fully do that, prepare their defense, which was technically called the fashion defense, as I said in the intro, in particular because of that. And the two of them took the main role in this beauty parlor, beauty shop, whatever you want to call it, to offer help to other murderesses awaiting trial, picking the outfits that they were to wear, teaching them how to do their hair and makeup on the day of their trials, just making sure that they show up all presentable. And this particular part is something that's so vivid in my imagination without seeing it, so that's why I really hope this was represented well. It's like, Leah, Odyssey, I hope you mention it. And it's not just my expectations, like with every fucking case, and then just have to drop and I have to like cry and die. Cool. Once the trial started at the Chicago City Courthouse, and two of them would get ready in the morning, they would of course try to own the goddamn courtroom. So Gartner, okay, Gartner would come in in the most ridiculous fucking shit that I have ever <laughs> seen. I don't know where she even found this hat. I, I think that was probably fashionable for 1920s. I'll put a picture up on the screen if you're watching this on YouTube. I, I don't want to diss somebody when my fashion sense is this, like what I'm wearing right now, and mostly just PJs and hoodies. Um, but I don't know what that was all about. I don't know how anybody took her seriously. So that was probably glamorized and completely inaccurately represented in the movie musical because anybody that was to see that would be like, no, just that, that's, that ain't hot. That just ain't hot for today's standards. As mentioned, she was a bit less mad and probably more credible as, like, commoner, like, on the jury watching and observing this case. And her prosecution had one of Walter Law's co-workers testify. Walter confided in him that she was a possessive lover. And she threatened him with a knife and she was just doing that desperate psychotic girlfriend shit which made Walter believe that she would kill him one day. Responding to that, to the journalist that we're going to speak about later, Maureen Watkins, she infamously said, no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it because there are always plenty more, which is a killer quote. It's not really true, or it speaks to the motive, and it speaks to maybe that she didn't love him, that she killed him for completely different reasons, and maybe this wasn't really crime or passion to begin with. Then she continues saying, Walter was just a kid, 29, and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Gin and guns, either one is bad enough, but together they get you in a dickens of a mess, don't they? And her whole defense, presented by William Scott Stewart, if the name means anything to anybody, was that she did find Walter dead in the car. 
but obviously it wasn't her that shot him, right? So she found him dead. She then, like, had the blood on her because, well, she was struck by emotion and she was, like, hugging him and trying to help him out. But then she, like, just left him on the scene and left, um, returned home, never called for help. That small part of the story. She blamed it on jazz and drinks. And she played the card of the fallen woman, using the class, the charm, the high fashion. And the jury was eating it up. That is the main difference of their defense and like what worked back then and what would work now. I say that, but then even when you see the case of Casey Anthony, you're like, hmm, I'm not sure. I'm going to say something because I will never cover the case of Casey Anthony right now and you're probably going to hate me for it. But I think what that case was truly was if you have ever watched How to Get Away with Murder, it was just good defense. I'm sorry to say it, but the lawyer knew what he was doing. I mean, he was probably getting pussy for it. She was probably sleeping with that lawyer as well. You know, to to pay the bills, to pay her um, trial bills. However, it was just good defense. Because the first thing, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, years of watching suits and how to get away with murder taught me a few things. And that is that you always try to blame it on somebody else. You find somebody else to blame. You find another plot. If you're not blaming it on somebody else, you find another plot. And Casey Anthony constantly blame it on, like, abuse of her dad. Maybe it was the dad that has done it. And then you plant the seed, you plant the reasonable doubt in the jury's heads, and that's kind of how you get away with it. Like, she didn't even have to dress all fashionably and be all dramatic in court. She just had to plant the seed of somebody else potentially doing it. And that's how she got away with it. So as much as I'd like to believe that something like this wouldn't be just eaten up by jury today, I can't say with certainty. Like, I don't think that was the 100% it. I don't think that was ever 100% it, the way it's obviously dramatized in the articles. I do think the defense had to do and the lawyers had to do something with it. However, back in the day, looks used to be associated with the class, the decency as well, which means that probably had a factor in the decision that they made. And on that note, I think that is exactly what her defense lawyers were doing, just planting seeds of doubt in the jury. Because the question wasn't just, did she do it? Or why did she do it? It was those, but also, did she shoot him in self-defense? Did she accidentally kill him? Did the third person do the slaying and she actually just found him there? And obviously, if there is reasonable doubt of any of these questions not involving her, then you have to acquit her. Otherwise, you have an innocent person in jail. And in her particular case, she did stick to one prevalent story. Like, so she wasn't switching it up like the other one will. She would say that the two of them got drunk at Gingham Cafe, that they drove home, that the car was found close to her house, so that's how, you know, they associated it to her, that she was found soaked in blood, but she was also so drunk, so she couldn't remember anything. And she also proposed that this cafe, because of how drunk the two of them were, that they did flip a coin, you know, just like the heads or tails thing, to decide which one should practice Russian roulette on one another. So, like, which one should have a first shot at one another? And the jury was like, mm, 
doesn't sound like an, something normal people play when they're drunk. Like, oh yeah, we have a gun, let's use that as a toy in our play. So her defense, of course, tried to blame it all on Walter and said that he was a boy who couldn't refuse women or gin. But the persecution portrayed him as somebody who was fearing Gardner. They said around a day before the murder, so just about 24 hours before the murder, he confided in his friends and said someday he will die, and probably at the hands of a woman with whom he went on drinking sprees once or twice a week. And guess who that was? It was Gardner. But also they questioned the owner of the Gingham Cafe, and he said, no, actually we didn't have alcohol on that particular day, so like... None of them should have been drunk just from what they were drinking here. They said they don't actually allow gin, so they just had ginger ale. He said that they were nice people and that he never saw this flipping of a coin and then just pointing of a gun. He never saw a gun in the cafe and he wouldn't have allowed that. So her story was kind of like falling through the cracks. But her defense team managed to plant enough seeds and the jury just wasn't sure whether this was truly committed by her because this was back in the day. Fingerprinting wasn't a thing. Um, you know, like the... What's it called when, like, it's... They can determine who last shot the bullet. You know, they're doing that Harry Potter magic. Bullet tracing something. You're screaming at the headphones, I know. And I will probably remember it, like, 60 <laughs> seconds after I finish this recording and then scream at myself. DNA to compare the blood found on her to him and to the car, it just wasn't a thing. So all the science that we could have used today to like determine fully, yes, this person is responsible, she did shoot a gun within the past day, just wasn't back then. So it was just basically who could tell a greater story. And in Gardner's case, the defense did. They planted enough seeds to raise some reasonable doubt whether she was actually the person even behind the crime. Which meant she was acquitted in June 1924. They were doing things pretty fast back then, you know, because, again, it's just about the story. It's not about collecting and gathering the evidence, is it? Jury took only six and a half hours to acquit her. And she, who was um, emotionless during this whole trial and just looking ridiculous with that freaking head, she suddenly burst into hysterical laughter when she heard her verdict, threw her arms around her lawyers and just thanked the jury. And like, okay, that dramatic compared to like the poised human that you just appeared to be like two seconds before. She exclaimed, oh, I'm so happy, so happy. And I want to hurry out now and get some air. Have your priorities straight. I mean, not saying that that wouldn't be me. In this case, I'm like, yeah, I'm free, man. Like, get the fuck out of here. This journalist will later describe Belva Gardner with one line. If Chicago were a person, she'd be Belva Gardner. Make of that as, as you wish, but she, but she might have just gotten away with murder. With Gardner again, because nothing relied on evidence, I can't say, like, 100%. With the next person we're going to talk about, Pula Anan. I just, I just have so much to say. None of it is good. All of it requires a lot of respect. <laughs> um, and uh, Beulah was crazy. <laughs> Beulah was scary. She was crazy. And she, she did it. I don't need evidence. She did it. She could not hold the story straight for the love of God. Like, this bitch is the legitimate proof that you need to know true crime to do true crime. Like, you just... You just need because otherwise you just 
don't understand the first rules. You fuck up at the first step. You're like, no, I'm going to change my story 20 times. You're like, that's the first rule, bitch. The first rule is stick to one fucking story, okay? You're a liability. So Beulah, she was Roxy Hart, if that means anything to anybody. Or if you're going directly to watch the musical after listening to this... And if you remember, this is the lover situation, the who reached the gun first kind of thing, and that will obviously become the important, because it's technically 99% of that story. Beulah's story has everything, because it has a husband that is sticking by her side, even though technically she was cheating on him, and then she possibly may, may not have killed the lover. It has this whole fucking story that she is trying to sell of who reached the gun first. It has the lover. It has the fact that she just sat on the floor for like four hours and just drank cocktails while he was slowly bleeding to death. That part, it has the fashion, it has the glamour, it has everything. Like, the fact that they even involved, like, another story in Chicago in itself is just bizarre to me, just looking from this perspective, because this story was just scandalous enough. But then, obviously, you know, they had to, because Murderer's Row, and, well, the journalists kind of researched all of them, so you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. She can't be the star, okay? But she's a star in my head. The morbid, morbid star. I do not support her decision. Prosecution was saying, well, this happened in her bedroom, in her own home. She obviously brought the lover there. You know, she was immoral. I mean, she was cheating on her husband. And the motive was, well, a couple of things, actually. There were plenty of motives here. They brought witnesses that said that he had lied about helping her become a famous jazz singer. So she was pissed about that. Also, they speculated that he found out she was pregnant and he suspected the baby was his. Or even if it is, her husband's even worse. He doesn't want to keep the baby. He doesn't want to bring up somebody else's child. And Anna didn't pull a Gardner in the court? Nope. As this article actually says, if Gardner was the classiest murderer in Chicago, Beulah Annan was the prettiest. She was quite pretty when she was young, and she would come and just own the courtroom. She had, like, a cute little bob. <laughs> okay, it sounds like I'm fucking fantasizing over a murderess. Okay, calm down. She had, like, a cute little bob, but it kind of looked fashionable even for... Even today, if she was to have that haircut, like, she wouldn't have been considered weird. That's what I'm saying. Like, even today, she would have probably passed on the street and people would be like, yeah, decent. As I already mentioned, her story is gonna change a couple of times. So first, she confessed to the murder. Then she claimed she shot him in, in self-defense and she feared that, you know, he's gonna make love to her. Then she changed that to rape because that sounded more serious. Another version of the story was that he told her he was leaving her. Because of that, she reacted in anger and then shot him. And her final story that was actually proven to be bullshit was the pregnancy one. She actually was never pregnant. But she said that she did tell him that she was pregnant. I don't know why to test the fucking waters. Why do you tell your lover you're pregnant? This is telling you everything about this woman's mental state. And then they both struggled and, you know, um, she reached the gun first. So her story was that Calstead phoned her early that morning and he said he was going to the west side to get some wine and is going to come to her apartment 15 minutes later. And she had afternoon off to work, so obviously this was great for her, you know, she's gonna get, like, she's gonna get some dick, she's gonna get drunk. However, because they got drunk, they started arguing. And this, I love that we have this transcript, I love it so much. She teased him a little. 
she called him Billy, the boy with an auto, like as in a boy with a car. Then she started like bickering about things that he was doing that he wasn't supposed to do. Great pastime, especially if both people are like mentally unstable, they're not gonna react great to bickering. She called him a four-flusher. I did not bother to look up what the fuck that is. Called him a jailbird because he served a penitentiary sentence for a statutory crime, apparently. And then, to all of that, he replied that she was no good. So, that was the cause for her to snap. Like, she she literally called him, like, ten things. He called her no good. She snapped. And then we have this transcript from the court where, basically, her lawyer, W.W. O'Brien interrupted her and said both went for the gun, basically making the emphasis on that. Both sprang for it. To which now the prosecution asks her, why didn't he get that far? Why couldn't he reach the gun? To which she replied, and this is when I would lose it as her defense lawyer. Her response is, darn good reason, I shot him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't he reach for the gun? Because I fucking shot him. Like, her lawyer is probably like putting his head in his hands like oh my god a woman shut the fuck up so she says she catches him as he's sleeping on the floor and he screams my god you shot me and she tried to tell him it wasn't true (laughs) she tried to convince him no 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 you'll be fine you're good and then the journalist described that she was just like playing with paper. She seemed disinterested to like the lawyers arguing over this, to like the whole situation in the courtroom and everybody just explaining this. And as the state's attorney read the confession of intimacy between the two of them, on three occasions she kind of like laughed lightly. She like smirked a bit like, that was me, you know. Uh, he wanted to make love to me because he is my lover. In my opinion, in her case, there was a lot more damning evidence. There was that whole four hours thing where they determined that she just sat and chilled in this pool of blood. So the policeman testified here and he was called at 6 or 5 o'clock. But the shooting must have happened approximately at 2 o'clock. So for four hours, she played the phonograph, she paced the floor, she probably drank some more before she phoned her husband telling him that she actually killed her lover. And I don't even think that they had, like, determinations for time of death, like, you know, through, like, contents of the stomach, the way they do it now in the modern time where, you know, they check the contents of your stomach, see, like, how digested is your food, or just have other methods of confirming it. They probably saw the blood and how, like, congealed the blood was, and they were like, yeah, this didn't happen, like, a few minutes earlier. This was hours that this one was just playing a record on repeat, like. <laughs> Also, you're going to prison. Why are you playing one single record on repeat? At least... This is why people piss me off. At least make use of that time and play, like, other songs that you probably won't listen to while you're going to trial. Might not even be acquitted. Might be sent to jail. Might not be able to listen to this music, bitch. However, the doctor that arrived at 6.20 actually said that Custet was only dead for about half an hour, so they never confirmed again which one is it, although people should probably trust the doctor more. But then the doctor might have, just as everybody else, been smitten with her. And also, as I mentioned, the science wasn't that great, so whichever one it is, whether it was half an hour or whether it was four hours, she literally sat with a dead body playing music and drinking. You remember how I mentioned that the husband is going to stand by her during the trial? Well, he did. 
However, she was the one who was obviously taking the center of attention. She was on it. She was posing prettily for pictures. Her husband was like hiding her face, hiding behind her, being like, please don't associate me with this story. Like, this is already an embarrassment. He also testified during the trial, identifying the gun as his. He told the officers at the police station, I've been a sucker, that's all, simply a meal ticket. I worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day and took home every cent of my money. I thought she was happy. I didn't know. So just like with her husband, everything during this trial is going to be around her. So every time the prosecution would try to point out that, well, he was actually closer to the gun, so how did she make it before him? Because he was literally like ahead of her. She would just blush it off. She would just be like slightly shook and be like, I don't know, I just uh, guess I was faster. Or when they ask her about her old statements, because she changed them like 20 times, as you remember. So a prosecutor read her these answers that she made at the Hyde Park police station at the night of the murder. This is the one where she confessed of killing the man after a jealous quarrel. And when he asked her, when you asked this, and was this your answer? She said, I don't remember. No, I I did not. No, I don't actually remember saying any of this. So, <laughs> must be that temporary memory loss. Again, let's blame the booze. And the vibe I'm getting from this is that she kind of played this childish character while she was on the stand. It's like, I don't remember, you know, oh, silly me, look at me, I'm a woman. I don't know much. And she knew that because how sexist the society was that they were going to eat that thing up. They were going to be like, oh my god, but look at her. She does seem so innocent. While like behind the curtains, she's literally like milking her husband for the money and like trying to get him to stay and pay for the fucking expenses. And this paragraph again just tells you all Because every time they were to describe this graphic thing or be like, well, you were actually sitting in the blood and just playing this record, you kind of look heartless, she would just break down. She would break down in tears and she would sob and be like, no, like, you know, that that isn't me. That doesn't sound like me. And their attorneys, of course, played it as the suffering. How, like, this delicate woman has been put for suffering by the police, by other assistant state attorneys. And she would kind of be composed. And then I think, like, she probably agreed with them when it was, like, the cue to cry. And that's when she would cry. Or they would be like, well, she was sitting, like, four hours. Like, she has been abused by this lover. She clearly had no other option but the self-defense. And then she, like, breaks down. The jury is like... She's definitely affected by this. This is a trigger. Whereas it's probably all decided like outside behind closed doors and she just gets the cue and she's like, crying time. Because people describe like she was sitting completely composed, completely chill until like she would suddenly just break down. Like, okay, seems like, seems like somebody just pressed the button. Okay. So when her defense lawyer painted a picture of little frail girl, gentlemen struggling with a drunken brood, the jury would just shake their hands in approbation and chew gum more energetically. Gotta love when the gum was approved. Chewing gum was just approved indoors. Gum should be abolished completely, okay? I fucking hate chewing gum. Her trial, if anything, ended even more dramatically than Gartner's one. The prosecutor's closing statement was, the verdict is in your hands and you must decide whether you will permit a woman to commit a crime and let her go because she is good looking. You must decide whether you want to let another pretty woman go out and say, I got away with it. And that's exactly what the jury has done. So in her case, they took a bit less than two hours to find her not guilty. 
<laughs> so as soon as the judge read out the verdict, she immediately went from like her composed self to like, oh, I'm happy. I'm actually displaying proper emotion right now. She said, oh, I can't thank you. You don't know. You can't know. But I felt sure that you would. And then she shut her trap, probably thinking like, okay, maybe I shouldn't like expose everything that I was hiding during this trial. So those were the two cases. Both of them probably went outside, you know, gave high fives to each other. I was like, yeah, that was great. Yeah, great performance. Amazing. Great shit. But before we find out how did I get there, let's go a bit into inside information from the trial. And who is going to give us that? Well, none other than Marine Dallas Watkins, who was the journalist that made their story public. She followed the trial closely and this was not her first trial. This was not Marine's first rodeo. Marine was a bad bitch. She was born in Kentucky and when she was 11, she received local notice for putting on a play that was that she wrote herself. At 11 years of age, she wrote a play called Hearts of Gold, and this play made $45 for charity at the time, which is probably like hundreds and hundreds of dollars now. At the age of 11, I had no talents, I still have no talents, let alone at the age of fucking 11. Maureen's yearbook quote, remember? Remember yearbook quotes? Did you have one? They didn't do that in my high school, but I would have probably had something from like a telenovela. She had a line from Romeo and Juliet, which makes me love her so much. Not because Romeo and Juliet, you know that I have no respect for Shakespeare. It's the line. The line she had in her yearbook was, she'll not be hit with Cupid's arrow. Happy Valentine's, everybody. This is it. She won't. She will resist. Fuck them boys, she has the career to chase after. And she will. She got accepted to a playwriting workshop at Harvard University. And she was to drop out of uni and had like some odd jobs in advertising for Standard Oil. But she always had playwriting like in the back of her head. So in early 1924, she landed a job as a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And she was like number one murderina. You cannot convince me otherwise. Because she covered crime courts and funerals, but also health issues, and gave style commentary, and followed just like feminists, women, and pacifism movements. I don't know what she covered funerals meant, like did funerals have like coverage before, or was it just obituaries? (laughs) Whoever writes obituaries has my utmost respect. I probably told this on the podcast, but I had the grandma, I mean, I still, she's still alive, what the fuck? She's still alive. I just can't deal with her. (laughs) She's this person. She would open the newspapers and go straight open it from the back on the obituaries page and then be like, hey, let's see who died today. And then people wonder how am I morbid? Like, what do you mean? Like, this is who I lived with. This is who came to like visit. This is like my grandma. This job would bring her more reporter gigs on women inside Cook County Jail. This is how it all started. This is when she starts covering the murders and the trials of Delva Gartner and Beulah Annan. And she used this cynical, sensational reporting, but it was always very obvious from her writing that she thought that both of them were guilty. She would highlight them as jazz babies, claiming to be corrupted by men and liquor. She was the first one to describe Beulah as beauty of the cell block and Belva as most stylish of murderous row. 
Soon after covering these trials and covering the ones of Leopold and Loeb, she returned to study again, and she moved to Yale University and helped start the Yale School of Drama. And during this assignment called 47 Workshop Course, she started writing up and finished fictionalized account of those two murders. At first, it was called The Brave Little Woman. Then, it was called Chicago, and then Playball. And finally, Chicago ended up being the name and the copyrighted version. This is when Beulah became Roxy Hart and Belva became Velma Kelly. Chicago opened on Broadway in 1926 and then toured for two years. It was made into a silent movie in 1927, and in 42 it became a movie called Roxy Hart. And many have sought the rights while she was alive to the play, but she refused them. She's like, nah, this is, this is for me to profit off. Like, this came out of my fucking brain because I have done all this hard work and I have covered all these cases, so shut the fuck up. But after her death, Bob Foss will end up buying the rights from her estate and he is going to work to create Chicago that opened in Broadway in 1975. And the 1996 revival of it will make it the longest-running American musical in Broadway history. For those of you who are keen and who will go to listen to Tell Me More, Tell Me More, The Phantom of the Opera is the longest-running musical of all time. And the end of Maureen's life is truly why somebody like me respects her, because she stuck to her yearbook quote. She lived her life against the stereotypes for the time. She was described as old-fashioned, she didn't fit the stereotypes, she was still a single working woman who decided to live life the way she wanted to. Because of her work, she was a millionaire, but kind of nobody knew it because she wasn't like one of those flashy people. Instead, she was spending this money to to fund Greek and Bible studies at some 20 universities, including Princeton. She died of lung cancer, but she left her legacy behind, and by the time of the 50th anniversary of her death, Chicago became a two-billion franchise. As for Belma and Beulah, what happened in their aftermath? Well, Gartner, in 1925, following her freedom, acquittal, whatever you want to call it, she remarried her first husband again. Mm -mm. (laughs) Not making great decisions, Gartner, listen, your fashion choices for the time, and... uh, your husband choices, like, if you divorce, do not remarry. What are you doing? Because this is not like you broke up with somebody, right? This is like divorce papers. It's a whole procedure. It's like a whole thing where you went for marriage and you knew it didn't work. Cool, cool. This is like unsolicited advice to somebody that died like fucking hundred years ago. <laughs> she also remained a drunk and was, well, convicted of drunk driving in November 1926. And her husband divorced her again, claiming that she was abusive and that she was an alcoholic. So really not trying to stay off the radar and like, you know, (laughs) make people believe that the acquittal was the right decision. I put in the script, she was not the most stable straw during a windstorm. Yeah, that will stick as an expression. Yeah, that will definitely be put into dictionaries. Yeah, Mm -hmm. straw during a windstorm in like the fucking environmentally friendly universe yeah where people are trying to get rid of straws you just you just can't (laughs) you just failed gartner did end up living until the age of 80 and she moved to pasadena california to live with her sister and she died of natural causes on may 14 1965 
And then, however, well, Janet, of course, there's more information. And, of course, it's all equally fucked up because her whole life was just like drama, you see? When you invite a drama into your life, your life will become dramatic and not in the most positive way. Cool. So her husband um, did stand by her even after her arrest. However, she, um, you know, thanked him probably for paying for all of that and as soon as she was acquitted uh, she has announced that she has left her husband because he is too slow he's too slow that is her justification just imagine being that husband being like no i believe my wife and then she just ends up calling you too slow what that's not even like a justifiable i'm leaving you because you're too slow on what front girlfriend is he slow at like pounding on what front why is that where your mind first goes (laughs) In 1926, she divorced him. After this divorce, she married another man who was a boxer. But only three months later, she claimed that he was cruel to her and she filed for divorce. And she obviously milked some money out of it. So she milked about $5,000, which is equivalent to $74,000 today. What is that inflation? What is that madness? And after this divorce, she was involved with a fourth man whose name was Abel. I'm not like to. This guy's name was Abel Marcus. <laughs> to which I put in the script. When you manifest works. You when you manifest yourself some ability, you get a husband called Abel. That's it. You manifest yourself an able man. She didn't live for too long after the trials though, because Anna died of tuberculosis when she was only twenty-eight years old. And just a proof that whatever you do, however much attention you kind of want to draw to yourself, um, it might not work if you, you know, don't leave like a legacy behind, kind of like Maureen did, but instead, you know, you are possibly a convicted murderer, everybody believes you are. Um, Even her grave kind of incorrectly noted her death a year earlier than she actually died. This is the year that like she kind of like remarried again. So she died in 1928 and not 1927. But yeah, if you ever find her grave, it might or might not say 1927. Oopsie, does anybody win in this case? Probably not. What were the lives before this trial? What were the lives before the murderous throw? Gardner was born in Litchfield, Illinois, and she was a three-time divorced cabaret singer. Before this trial, she used a professional name, Belle Brown. And when she married William Gardner in 1917, he was actually 20 years older than her, and he was obviously wealthy. However, he managed to get divorced from her, claiming that her first marriage has never been finalized, like she has never actually gotten correctly divorced. So he managed to have the marriage annulled and she didn't really profit out of it. And as we know, somehow he did manage to remarry her even after she was acquitted for murder. But that's pretty much what we know about. We don't know much about like, you know, childhood. Was there any trauma? It is just very much to what we will see with Beulah. Just women who didn't know much else, but were going into relationships, were going into marriages, were trying to get better lives, like seek for better lives in the time when that was truly all you could do. Either you could be a wealthy wife or you can be just like a poor housewife working technically for somebody and just staying at home all day, bringing up children. And that was not the life that these two intended to live. Anand was born in Kentucky, and while she lived there, she married her first husband, who was a newspaper linotype operator. 
cool titles, cool titles. However, they soon divorced, of course, because that, what, what is that job? That job is not good enough for her. Come on, we know that she is insane. <laughs> so she soon met a car mechanic, Albert L. Annan. You know, the, the guy, the the guy that stuck with her, even though she cheated on him and then she milked him for more money and then called him too slow. So she kind of seemed to have followed a different life from what I just said. Like, it seemed like she wanted actually to like earn her own money. So she eventually became a bookkeeper at this laundry shop. But this is, imagine, it's just like it's a laundrette and she meets a guy. Like, how desperate you need to be to be like, no... Laundrette, it's a good day. I'm just doing my bookkeeping, and Harry Calstead walks in, and I need some action. <laughs> I always wanted to fuck on the washing machine, so let me start an affair. That's truly everything we know when it comes to the background in these women. And I think fashion defense did work for a reason, and it kind of proves that, like, this is what happens when you give, like, some straight white men to make decisions. It's like my conclusions. It's like straight white men should not be making decisions. And you'll have to let me know, do you think this would have happened today? Like, would they just be able to play it up? Or would they need some better defense? Because probably today they would actually have the evidence part, right? So, you know, evidence would probably be able to prove that, hey, it was them. And then if there was evidence doesn't matter what kind of defense you have, it's literally right there, you know, undeniable factors. The jury isn't just there to buy a better story. But now, what do we think motivated these two? I was kind of conflicted on different fronts here, so you'll have to let me know, do you see something very obvious? For me, I kind of compare it to, like, crimes of passion, mix of jealousy and control. And I think control was really prevalent here. Like, the way that these two wanted to own a courtroom, that wanted to own their trial, kind of tells me, like, they probably wanted to own their own lives. And it's exactly that, that they wanted a better life. They wanted, like, to marry into some form of stability, wealth, so that they don't have to be just housewives. They don't have to be the common women of the day. They wanted to be jazz singers. They wanted to be divas in a way. And when it looked like that was getting out of control, they took the matters into their own hands. And in both situations, I think that they killed once it has gotten out of control, once that person wasn't serving them right. Like, they probably said the wrong thing or they said, like, they can't actually provide them with that career. And, well, they're like, well, I kind of treated my husband purely because of this. Like, I kind of purely wanted to have an out and to have a win-win, to have an out of the marriage and to finally become who I want to be in life. And this is the way I chose it. And now you're saying, what, that I can't have that career? Like, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of you? And they probably just snapped in the moment because of the anger, because of the rage, because it was also alcohol-fueled. And because it just wasn't healthy relationships. None of it was healthy. And that's purely what I always say, or I'll start saying from now on. And that's if you are in a toxic one, Again, referring to the case that I started this podcast for, or, well, that was, you know, like a trigger, um, you gotta get completely out of it. Otherwise, whatever that person does is going to trigger you, you know, and then obviously once you're drunk, you're gonna start quarreling, you're gonna start snapping at each other, and it's just going to be in a split of a moment, in a split of a second, whatever they say, you're gonna be like, well, that's the final straw. 
fuck it. So eliminate toxic people completely, 200% out of your life. Don't even let them be like on your on your mind. Block them on your phone, block them on the socials. Otherwise, everything that they do, you're going to find personal. You're going to see as a personal attack, and it's probably not. But you'll think about it as such. Now that the advice corner is over here on the bad network, and you have gotten rid of the toxic in your life and eliminated them completely... Um, you decide to go into your next Zoom call. Maybe because you still want to get paid or give a fuck about your job. Or it isn't as toxic while you're working from home and you don't really want to kill your co-workers. Two quick things on small talk. One is to see if it can be normalized. Not asking people what they're doing during the weekend. Uh, post quarantine yeah because that would be great if you can just mind your own business and not ask me what i was gonna do this weekend the same way you don't care because you don't want to ask me now because it's all the same right yeah that would be wonderful if everybody would just like normalize that i I would love that personally i don't know about you but if you feel that way start normalizing that you know before the shit comes to shove and before you go back to the normal life. And the second bit is, well, the complete opposite. What I have noticed, especially during quarantine, is that everybody's trying to outdo each other's small talk. I don't know if you have noticed that, but I did in my meetings, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I have done 100 workouts, I have baked all these pancakes for the pancake day, I have made like all of these muffins. You're like, nobody cares. <laughs> it's like, I've done 20 walks in a park. And you're just like, um nobody cares like I don't want to be there being like well I have actually done x y and z and it's better than your x y and z because um that's that's not what we should be doing why are we out doing each other's small talks like let's get over that let's normalize not doing that cool now that this advice section is done I'm gonna let you move on with your Monday and uh join me in March because March is gonna be wild equally wild Morbid on a different level, but I hope I'm going to be able to insert like, you know, more humor into it, more lightness into it. But you'll have to join me to find out. In the meantime, you can always interact on the socials, Pod, everywhere, every social media, or podbam at gmail.com if you like the snail mail. And until next one, you keep making this world a better place, one motive at a time. Bye, fuckers.